The Forward Thinking CFO podcast is brought to you by the team at Nemertas, your financial modelling partner. We're trusted modelling advisors to global leaders ranging from FTSE 100 corporations to major infrastructure providers to fund managers with billions under management. But we're more than just modellers. Our team are true experts who understand your business and create solutions to help you overcome your challenges and give you the confidence you need to make your critical business decisions. To find out more about how we can help you solve your toughest business challenges, please visit our website at numeritas.co.uk. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Forward Thinking CFO podcast. My name is Stephen Aldridge, Managing Director at Numeritas and one of your hosts for this series. In this episode, we're doing something a little different. Our guests give us so much brilliant advice about what it takes to build a successful career as a CFO, we think it's worth listening to all over again. That's why we've decided to bring a selection of their insights together in one show. You'll hear from some of the most experienced and skilled CFOs there are, including James Davis, advisor to investment firm BGF, Sahil Rishi, CFO at Sedgwick International UK, Richard Evans, finance director at Excalibur Communications, Mark Stevenson, Director of VTG AG, Sean Rotherston, CFO at UNI, Chris Milne, CFO at Orbital Marine Power, Rob Haxton, a veteran of board level group finance director roles, and Brian Jones, Head of Product at Microsoft Excel. They discuss how they made it to the top of the profession, including who helped them along the way, what challenges they had to overcome, and how you can follow in their footsteps not to mention what the future holds for CFOs. Sadly, we couldn't include all our guests in one episode, but listening back to each show, it's striking how much knowledge they've shared. This is a small snapshot of their wise words, and we hope to add more compilation episodes in future to make sure you get the benefit of all their know-how and expertise. So take a seat, minimise your spreadsheet, and enjoy the show. Nobody can succeed as a CFO alone, that's why our guests all value mentors so highly. Here's what James Davis, Sahil Rishi and Richard Evans had to say about their experience. I did have a mentor, actually, and, and someone who I am still still use now. And this particular person was incredibly valuable to me as, as I joined the board. It was my first board appointment. And the board dynamics are, are fascinating, particularly when you have external investors, as we did, at that time. And to have someone who helped me with this and and in effect be a a voice in the board meetings was really, really, really helpful. And in particular, probably one of the biggest lessons I learned at that time was, look, if, if we as an exec team had differences of opinions or different views on things, we learned to sort things out before the board meeting rather than sort of airing them during the board meeting. And, and that was something that I've sort of maintained th- through the rest of my, my career. I think the other thing that I let, had to learn sort of along the way was how to adapt my leadership style. And to start with, if you imagine you're able to sort of wrap your arms around a particular issue or particular problem, but as the business grew, I needed to sort of adopt a more structured approach to, to leadership and whether that was calls or whether that was meetings, you bring all of that into place while also sort of nurturing and retaining that ability 
to that innovation ability, that flexibility, that agility that had, that had got the business and sporting index to be the success that it was already. So, you know, setting up cross-functional leadership teams, that was something that I really had to sort of learn and, and progress. And I suppose personally, one of the key areas that I had to learn was how to, what I call, look up and look down. So look up strategically, think strategically about certain challenges, certain issues, certain opportunities, while at the same time, you know, almost in the next hour or the next moment, having to look down, get stuck into the detail if there was a particular sort of nuggety problem or nuggety challenge that needed to be sorted out. And and I was probably the only person who could do it. So, yeah, those were the lessons, if you like, that I learned along the way. I guess looking back, you know, I wish I'd had the opportunity to sit down with a CFO and kind of ask all of those questions that uh, that you kind of have, you know, and some, some of them still do, you know, and it would better pay you for the role if you could have an honest conversation with the CFO around, uh, you know, what the role's like, you know, how they feel, you know, what are the skills that you need to work on, you know, how do you lead a large group of people, you know, all, all those sort of things that you can't, you, know, you don't get the opportunity to ask kind of day to day. So that, that would have been a great opportunity. I, I would encourage people to get a mentor, uh, preferably someone who's doing a role which you aspire to, but it doesn't have to be. It can just be someone who you look up to and respect and um, you know use all the knowledge that you get from talking to that person to pay for that role. So I think even at, you know, even at Deloitte, the, the benefit of working for a different manager and or partner you know, every couple of weeks or, or month just gives you visibility of lots of different management styles and uh, yeah that's useful so i think observing how others approach situations is, is is helpful and getting as much experience as that just means you can you know try different things yourself and and react to different situations with you know hopefully a good sort of tool set in terms of um your know, approach i think though the I mean, the majority of my professional development and, and certainly that sort of mentor relationship really came through when I was at Tribal. I, I mentioned already the CFO, you know, really, really believed in me. I think he probably pushed me into each of my promotions there before I would have necessarily been asking for them. But the key thing there is it's not just about giving responsibility. I think that the really big you know, lesson I learned and the thing I think he did really well was you know, also making himself available. So, you know, you're stretching, you're being stretched, you're, you're being given things that you need to go away and understand how to do. But then knowing that somebody's there and available to ask when you, you know, hit, hit roadblocks or stumble just gives you that confidence in, you know, being able to deliver at the end. So I think, yeah, his approach worked really well for me, really kind of brought me on in terms of my confidence and, and ability and, and breadth of experience as, as we've discussed. And I think that was just infectious across the team. So yeah, the, a couple of peers that I work with there in that in that finance team all reporting into the CFO, yeah, we all sort of tended to work in that way. So it, you know, it trickles down the business. You've got, you know, people further down in the finance team asking for responsibility, looking for, you know, proactively for additional value they can bring and it, it just sort of is a virtuous circle i guess and i think it's supporting the other comment i'd make is supporting each other even if it's not in your direct responsibilities if you like again just becomes that 
virtuous circle. So, you know, I, I'd hit challenges, you know, not be, not be hundred percent clear in my mind what the answer is. And, and I'd pick up with one of the other, you know, one of the other finance directors and, you know, we'd, we'd run through that together. We'd sort of bounce ideas off each other and I think we'd get to a better answer as a result. I just think, you know, as, as we said earlier, investing in those relationships, uh, just, just pays dividends hugely. And, you know, I still talk to all of those guys now regularly. I still you know, bounce challenges off them and, and vice versa. And I, I just think that's, you, know, you need to, you need to think, think long-term really in terms of where you're investing time and not necessarily just about the tasks that you've got in front of your nose. Our guests have taken many paths to the top, all growing their careers in different ways. It's Mark Stevenson, Sahil Rishi and Sean Wotherston talking about their journeys. The reason I went to AAE was that GE had made a bid for 51% of the equity while still a startup. And the advice we gave was what, to what extent that gave a good value for money for the shareholder. He had a cash book at the time. That's all he had. Our advice was not to take that offer, but to actually build something himself. And that's when I joined to help him build. It was clear from the start that the railway leasing business is extremely capital intensive. And therefore, you, know, you need both equity, but also access to debt capital. And one of our first decisions was that if we were to get a, a well-known larger company on board as a joint venture partner, that would give us a lot more traction with the financing community. And therefore, we entered into a joint venture whereby initially it was a three-way joint venture with a manufacturer, but very quickly became a joint venture of 62.5% Andrea Score and 37.5% GATX which at the time was the second largest railway lessor in the US. Clearly, on the one hand, I had a fairly mercurial CEO, that was Andreas at the time when I started. So between 1994 and 1998, he was himself the CEO. Very much agile, very pioneering. We took a lot of risks, the risks that he, you know, we talked about. So one of my roles was to make sure he understood the risks and that he decided which risks he wanted to take and which not. And then with uh, GATX, and they came in a little bit later, but they were still a minority shareholder, then to make sure that you know, while we were doing the entrepreneurial um, investment things in Europe, at the same time to give them the comfort they required for their corporate governance and their reporting. Clearly, as an American-listed company, they had a very different view on the world to the a European entrepreneur. Now, they've been in the business for 80 years. One of their great uh, prides being they had never, ever missed a quarterly dividend, whereas Andreas was only interested in one thing, and that was growing. So there was clearly a tension in the strategies. So one of my, you know, one of my major roles was to make sure that somehow those two strategies could be combined to be acceptable to both parties. Right. So, and as a minority shareholder, was there a, a great amount of reporting that GATX required or was that uh, relatively modest and you kind of gave them what uh, what you felt they needed? I think, you know, you've got to be careful. There was a shareholders agreement whereby their protection as a minority was far in excess of what one would normally expect. But that was more in terms of you know, capital structure. That was more in terms of the you know, things we could or couldn't do. 
In terms of reporting, from the very outset, we decided to go with IFRS. The reason for that was that we needed a large amount of bank debt. And what one perhaps should realise is that when I joined the company, we had 2,000 railway wagons. Um, we had a capital increase in 1995 when Geotix came into the business. And from then, we grew the business to 25,000 wagons without any additional fresh external capital. So grown solely through financing, financing structures and reinvestment of the earnings that we made each year. So therefore, the reporting was very much aligned to the capital markets reporting, to our debt reporting, IFRS. And that was clearly at the time for a small company, quite a burden, IFRS reporting, albeit not as burdensome as today. But we did in, in report under IFRS on a quarterly basis. On a quarterly basis, there were shareholder meetings where we had to you know, provide all the normal sort of both financial and management accounting analyses. But that's a great discipline in terms of building up the way which we reported the business going forward. Cambion, as I mentioned, was, was a very pivotal role for me. I joined there as a finance manager, which was to manage the AP uh, and the accounting team, the accounts payable and the accounting team. Uh, I think the team at that time that I was looking after had about six people in it. And by the time I left Cambian, I, I left as a group controller, you know, managing a very large team after the company had completed its IPO. So I didn't actually join when the team was that large. It kind of expanded. You know, I was there as the company grew and evolved. You know, and during that time as well, the company doubled in size, you know, mainly for M&A activity and also went through a listing. So yeah, I had to build and lead a, a, a team through that change. Yeah, it was an extremely challenging time. It tested my resilience. Uh, and it actually, the thing it learned, taught me was the, you know, how to hire good people. Yeah, and as you can imagine, you know, when you're hiring you know, that many people and trying to build a function, you, know, you don't always get it right. You know, so you learn from your mistakes. But I was proud of kind of what we achieved during my time there. And uh, you know, that role really set me up for, for where I am today. Sure, yeah. And... Uh... I guess there were additional skills that you had to learn along the way. Was that a big change? Do you, as you're going from a relatively junior position initially and you know, having to hire lots of people, change your style a bit? Yes, it's one of those interesting things where you know what got you to where you are is not necessarily going to be the same skills that will make you successful moving forward. You know, when you're when you're going, you're trying to climb the ladder and you know progress your career. You know, it's, it's often that your technical ability that gets you the promotions and gets you to the next step. And then you get to a point where, you know, having the technical ability is obviously you know, important, but it's the leadership and the stakeholder management and some of the softer skills that are really going to help you. Yeah. And that's, and that's kind of the journey that, um, that I started at Cambian. And you know, one of the main reasons I went to Egon Zender was actually to, you know, to, it was in recognition that, you know, I had a lot of work to do in that area and it felt like a very good place given what they do for, for a living to build and hone those skills. Because I have a background in raising money, I tend to look for businesses that need to raise capital. So I'm not really a CFO for a business as usual at a at a steady rate. It's not really what I want to do and and I'm probably quite expensive for that sort of business in terms of of remuneration. However, I, I do enjoy the whole breadth of the CFO role, everything from the decision making, the strategy, all the way through to dealing with some of the finer details of, of building the KPIs and the general ledger. So I tend towards the smaller and medium sized businesses because then I can get involved in the full breadth of, of activities and it means I can see the whole project through from professionalizing 
the reporting uh, all the way through to, to raising the money. So I, I tend to get involved now in, in roles where there's a, a need to professionalise the reporting and then take that improved reporting to the investors or a new set of investors to raise more money to finance the development of the business. In terms of how I weigh up the risks, I find it very hard, but getting easier as I become more experienced and I am able to be a bit pickier about what I do and more confident about what I do and my capabilities. So getting your second CFO role is a multitude of times easier than your first. And as you progress each time, you can ask more questions, you can be more upfront and and more assertive, if you like, in the interview process. So now I, I try to look at each role really as if I'm the investor, which in a way I am, except I'm investing my career and my time and I'm not able to spread the risk. But I, I try to assess the opportunity such that if I'm not going to make a financial return, at least I'm getting a broadening experience that will advance my career and make me more attractive for the next opportunity in several years time. So I, I, I wish there was the perfect answer to to how to make a success of the next role. The, the thing I don't do enough about probably is spend enough time with the CEOs before I join. So I sort of find that there's, you know, momentum builds up around the hiring process and there's a bit of a rush to sign up either from my side or from the recruiter or from the, the investor who wants his CFO on board. And uh, I, I certainly wish that I spent more time just getting to know the CEOs, not not because there have been issues around it, but, but when you join, my experience is that things are rarely as they were made out in the interview, usually a bit more desperate, a bit more work to be done. And it would be better to have that stronger bond before you start. It, it usually works out fine, but um, I think it's a critical relationship and I, I wish that I invested more time in that at the beginning. One thing we always ask on the podcast is what tips guests have for aspiring CFOs, and they never fail to come up with some very sound advice. Here are some of our favourites. Well, well, I suppose wider advice is, is, you know, find something that you you genuinely have a a degree of passion about. You know, it's uh, being a CFO of any organisation, you know, it ain't a nine to five, it's demanding. You will go through periods of uh, sleepless nights and stress. That's kind of part of the gig. So you need to feel it's worthwhile. You absolutely need to feel it's worthwhile and it's a worthwhile use of your time. So that, that, that's that's the first thing. I mean, renewable energy in, in particular, you know, it's it, it's just it's just a must. You know, it's not going to be renewable energy for too much longer. It's just going to be energy because everything needs to become renewable. You know, it, it will take a bit of time, but um, it is the way forward. So it very much depends on the individual. You know, people that have different strengths, you know, there's a number of big utilities in the UK where you can maybe sort of get a, you know, a grounding and maybe study support. But I suppose for the more entrepreneurial ones uh, and individuals out there that are willing to take a bit more of a risk, you know, there's no shortage of startups. You need to be alive to the risks that uh, come with being in a in a startup or a, a pre-revenue or technology development company. Uh, cash is king, whether you're a big utility, or, but particularly if you're a pre-revenue company. And, you know, that will bring with it some challenges. But uh, find something that you enjoy. Find people that you enjoy working with and you know, put the work in. You only get back what you put into it, just like everything else in life. You know, try your best not to say no to things. Say yes. 
do things, challenge yourself. Very few things aren't rewarding. Uh, not everything works out the way you thought it would, but you, the, the, the old saying's true. You, you're far more likely to regret not doing something than doing something. So put yourself out there. Certainly knowing the business very well, by which I mean understand the business levers in, in, in the company. Is it, you really have to understand where is the value coming from, first and foremost. Is it from better marketing campaigns? Is it the revenue streams, all revenue streams, making a profit, for example? But understanding the value levers within a company. Business partnering with other stakeholders, non-finance stakeholders is key. Uh, you have to be able to communicate and articulate with the non-finance part of a company, be it the legal team, be it the marketing team, be it the sales team, always trying to assist and help their their side of the business and understanding what they need. That to me is key, being able to listen to what is needed from each department. It means that often you have to be quite a bit of a chameleon of legal being able to talk differently to marketing but it has to be integral to the business as part of any company. And then also, I think, to be a, a, a CFO, to be a trusted business partner. But it's the finance world, you can't be the, the crazy, jazz hands, creative type of guy. You have to be that professional, mature and outlook person that is a, a trusted partner for a CEO or a COO. I, I think um, the first thing, and it, it, it is networking, and, and I know all the books say this, and I hated it doing it. I'm not a natural networker, and perhaps many people who work in finance aren't. But it's it's absolutely true. I, I got my first CFO role through someone I'd worked with, and it came up when I was having lunch with him. I, I got the role outside of a headhunter process where there's no way I would have got into a headhunter process, but they were looking for a, a specific range of skills. I kind of ticked the box boxes for some of them, but I had a very good relationship with the individual. And that was a huge help. And I think throughout your career, there'll be people who you may have left five or 10 years ago, but they will retain an impression of you. And and regardless of where you are in your career, you should network to get in front of people uh, and, and so that people talk positively about you. I think the first is just really you know, do a really good job right now in what you're doing go above and beyond make sure everything that you're doing is of the highest quality your reputations recommendations those are key to getting a cfo job it's quite a small world out there so do a really good job right now second i'd say find out what your gaps are and get the experience you know knowledge and skills you need to fill those gaps you put your hand up for project pieces of work you know and roles that give you that experience you know you may not go down a traditional route but that's fine you know, there's a lot of candidates become, you know, becoming, you know, doing good big CFO roles that didn't go down as a traditional accounting route, for example. And I think the lot, you know, lastly, just keep learning. You know, I think uh, people who who want to do these jobs are the, the kind of people who want to just constantly learn new things. You know, there, there's that kind of curiosity. Personally, I spend a lot of my time reading uh, articles, watching talks, listening to podcasts. You know, I think it's the best way to get an edge on everyone else. Finally, what does the future hold for CFOs? In a word, automation. Here's why. I mean, looking out longer than that, I, I think really that the finance functions and, and CFOs have to embrace automation. 
So the pressure is going to come on finance to deliver more value with less effort and to respond more quickly to the needs of a business. And therefore, to basically shift from being that traditional processing function to be much more about strategic partnering and therefore the ability to automate your your core accounting processes are going to be absolutely key to doing that. And and because the CFO is in a sort of privileged position, it's really not just the finance function that that you'll have visibility on or the CFO will have visibility on. It's the other sort of services and systems and processes that are in the business as well, where because of your role, you'll be able to say, well, I tell you what, how can we just make this more effective, more efficient, more automated? And in that way, sort of bring everyone together to align behind the the long-term vision for the company. Well, I suppose the things for me are automation of the finance function. And I think that is not just a five-year time horizon, but you can do it. It it doesn't have to be a huge exercise that takes a year to plan and, and a year to integrate and another year before you see the benefits. I think a lot of it can just can be done without external consultants, just looking around you, what is it that's taking up your team's time when you look at your month-end timetable uh, or look at what people are doing all day, every day, what is it that can be automated? What is it that can be taken out? And then there is no doubt automation beyond that is critically important. One of the things you'll probably start to see us do more of is the in-product learning. And so we have a lot more intelligence now, a lot of AI that we've built where we can kind of capture patterns of what people are doing and see either is there a better way of doing it or should we just go and at least pop up some help to help people if we kind of see that they're stuck or if we see that, you know, they're not taking advantage of the product in ways like a simple example of that that we're, we've started to experiment a bit with is pivot tables. You know, pivot tables are pretty intimidating for the large percentage of our of our user base. But the people that do know how to use them, like, I mean, they're amazing, right? Like most people, like when I talk to customers, most people can remember the first time they saw a pivot table and how blown away they were, right? We'll see a lot of times that people will be manually trying to create a pivot table where they'll go and write a bunch of sum formulas if they even know how to go and use the formula language. And they'll go and kind of manually figure out like, They'll filter a table down and they'll go and do a sum of the remaining results and then they'll go and copy that value and paste it down to another sheet and then they'll do that again and again and again. So we're looking at things like that where we could go and say, hey, here's a feature that why don't we just, we'll suggest the pivot table to you and let you go and insert it. And so the easiest place for people to see some of that AI tech right now is uh, if you click on the uh, ideas button on the home tab, it's this little lightning bolt. We used to call it Harry Potter that uh, shows up kind of off on the on the right side. And if you go and launch that, you'll see a task pane pop up that will go. If you, if you have a table of data, it'll go and scan that data and kind of give you suggested pivot tables and charts and things like that. Try and see if there's any interesting things going on in your data. So we're going to do more around intelligence to kind of try and make the application more approachable to the novice user so they can really get started. The Forward Thinking CFO podcast is brought to you by the team at Nemertas, your financial modeling partner. We're trusted modelling advisors to global leaders ranging from FTSE 100 corporations to major infrastructure providers to fund managers with billions under management. 
But we're more than just modelers. Our team are true experts who understand your business and create solutions to help you overcome your challenges and give you the confidence you need to make your critical business decisions. To find out more about how we can help you solve your toughest business challenges, please visit our website at numeritas.co.uk.